Oh, please turn in your Bibles again, if you're not there already, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I'm going to read again just verses 26 to 31. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that he might nullify, he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Once again, let's ask for God's blessing upon his holy word. Our Father, we thank you for your faithful work of gathering a people for your name, of saving a people from their sins, and for revealing to them their true character and your true purposes in salvation. And we ask our God you will make this all the clearer to us in order that we may be able to make our boast in you and not in ourselves. Please hear us, glorify your Son, do your mighty works of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. It is true, and it is demonstrated in the church at Corinth that the people of God, true Christians, may be led astray by their indwelling sin, by their temptations, the temptations of the world and the devil, and so that wise triumvirate of challenges, the world, the flesh, and the devil, Christians may be led astray by these things. Yet the nature of God's grace in them is such that the remedies to their confusions and sins are never far from them. We might think that the spiritual challenges we have keep us far from the remedies to those challenges, but it is not so. Our remedies and our graces from God are generally close to us, as is illustrated in this passage. Paul has begun to address his concerns to these Christians because they have allowed divisions in their midst. These divisions were based in part on their appetite that they had for style, for personality, for culture, for outward appearance. The Corinthians were in love with the wrong things. And they were so much wrapped up in this that uh, 
Paul says he wouldn't have been surprised to see them abuse their baptism, which ought to underscore their union with Christ. But Paul says, I wouldn't be surprised if they make it a claim for attachment to myself, Paul, rather than to Christ. And for this reason, he was glad for his commission from Christ, which was a safeguard against those abuses. Christ, he said, did not send me to baptize, but to preach. And again, baptism has its right place and design, but Christ's commission protected Paul from centering on the wrong thing. Not only so, it also directed him how he was to carry out the central work of his commission, which was preaching. He wasn't directed to what Paul calls word wisdom, style, uh, content, cleverness, with conventional wisdom. Paul was not appealing to the wise sayings of the day. And I, as I have thought about this in times past, I asked myself, well, what are the things that people say today? People say things like, you only go around once in life. Well, that's true. But that doesn't mean that you have to go for all the gusto that you can get. You see, that's the way the world thinks about it. You can't please everyone. That's the way the world thinks. So you have to please yourself. Those are what people say, what people think are the wise sayings of the day. Paul would not appeal to such things. Rather, he appeals to God's wisdom. In verses 18 to 25, which we have already considered in previous sermons, Paul has contrasted the world's wisdom and God's wisdom. He started by showing the failure of gospel despisers in verses 18 through 20. The problem with gospel despisers is that they have not come to the knowledge of God. They don't know God. And the rationale for preaching a gospel that they despise is because God, in his wisdom and his might, uses it to save even to say gospel despisers. And so Paul says we ought to have confidence in the gospel itself. Don't worry about whether people despise it because God is able to save through it even the people who despise it. In our text this morning, Paul brings up proof of what he has been saying uh, about God's wisdom and strength. You notice at verse 26 that Paul starts, at least in my version, with for. For consider your calling, brethren. That word for is a, a word of logical inference. He's proving what he said at the end of verse 25, or in the contents of verse 25. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul's proving this. He does more than simply prove, actually, there is a further explanation about God's acts and purposes, as we shall see today, God helping us. Not all, uh, what we're not going to do this morning is we're not going to go all the way through verse 31. I'm hoping to get as far as Verse 29, but I don't expect to get further. Those 
last couple of verses and chapter one will await a future sermon at the end of the month, God willing. So, we first of all consider the focus of the proof that Paul uses. Paul is going to prove how great God's wisdom and power are in Christ. And he has a way of directing our attention to it so that it will be convincing and helpful and will direct us in the right way. And the focus of the proof that Paul uses is the community formed by God's gracious work of salvation. Notice verse 26. For consider your calling brethren, so your calling, those who are saved and called. Consider your calling brethren, think about it, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Look around you, he says, see who does know God. See who is actually saved. Paul has marked the failure of gospel, gospel despisers. They don't come to know God. Now he uses the same idea to show God's power and success. There is an implied, implied reproof in this. Paul is telling the Corinthians, you're looking at the wrong things. You're looking at yourselves the wrong way. You're valuing too much the way the world thinks and not the way God acts, what God does in his powerful, saving grace. There's a reproof there. It's a gracious reproof. It's a corrective reproof. It's a valuable reproof that we should take to our heart. He says, see, look, consider, consider it. Consider your calling. That, that little phrase in the text there for consider your calling could be a, uh, the, the word is just plain see. Look at this. And it could either be a command. It's telling them, look around you. Or it could be just a statement. You see your calling. It's, it's all around you. The evidence of what God does in salvation is clear. Open your eyes. Look at the people around you, the Christians around you. That's Paul's point. He says, you should have known. All you had to do was look around you, and you would have known. Who actually knows God? What is the character of the people who actually know God? To whom has he revealed himself? Well, it's not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty, not many noble. You see, if you look at the people, their educational level, their intellectual characteristics, etc., you would understand this. He says, not many wise, the, the great thinkers, renowned in the world for their analysis and prodigious proclamation so that when something happens you, you get the talking heads on the TV news stations or maybe a special about uh, hurricanes and why these people went through these experiences and they speak they have the answers when they speak 
telling us how we're supposed to look at this. Everybody, everybody on the other screen shakes their heads and uh, everybody uh, repeats the things they hear these, these talking heads, these very smart people. Those are not the people in your church. They're not that kind of people. These are not the strong. The people whom God saves among you, he says they're not many mighty. This is not really a word about physical strength. They're not talking about whether or not you have people who can win strongman competitions in your church. It, it may include them. But the mighty are those who can get things done. They're the people they send to other countries. So they go to other countries in the times of political crisis. And they gather together with the movers and the shakers. And they say, okay, well, this is what we have to do to end poverty. This is what we have to do to end climate change, to, to fix climate change. This is what we need to do to end hunger. These are the people who can get things done. It's interesting when one of the Roman officials has Paul arrested and the Jews want Paul prosecuted. They say, the, the, the Roman official says in Romans, I'm sorry, Acts 25, 5, let the influential people among you come to me. I want the influential people, you see, because they get things done. They have power, strength to get things done. So Paul says it's not the wise. Nor is it the strong, the influencers, nor is it the third category. The noble, the well-born, people with special social status. Now, here it becomes clear that Paul and the Corinthians are not Americans. Uh, our, in our country, our country began with the rejection of high social status. In England, you still have a nobility, right? Still have a nobility. And, and everybody uh, talks about the royals and what the royals do. That's, that's the general idea. Our country had its origins in the rejection of social and political distinctions based on family. We hold this truth to be self-evident that all men are created equal. That was the rejection of social and political distinctions in family. But in Roman culture and in most other cultures, there are the nobility, the privileged. Even here in America, we have a few families who have risen almost to the rank of families. I was talking to a young man uh, yesterday, and I didn't, I didn't expect us to talk about this kind of a thing. He married into a family that is very influential, and the children of the family, of course, they, they benefit from the social status. They connected people. They have people who are already in high places. And the children 
benefit from them. The parents make sure that they know the right people and can find their way into lucrative positions in society and in vocation. So our culture still does have this idea of the well-born, the noble, although it is somewhat mass. Well, Paul's point, at least starting in verse 26, and, and past verse 26, Paul's point is that when you look around and see who fills the seats of your church, they are not filled with these kinds of people. Look around you, he says, brethren, not many wise, according to the flesh. There is a kind of wisdom, Paul's point, according to the flesh, uh, there is a kind of wisdom that marks the people of God. But these, the, the naturally wise, they're not filling your church. The mighty, the influencers, the people who can get things done, that's those are not your people. And the noble, well-born people with social status from birth, born with a silver spoon in their mouth, these are not the people who are in your church, not by and large, not many. There was a woman, uh, I, I was going to look up the, her, her dates, but I didn't have time. A woman who lived around the same time as John Newton and William Cooper, her name was Lady Huntington, a very influential person. And she said, I was saved by the letter M. It says not many noble he doesn't say they're not any noble, not many noble. She was definitely a converted woman, so she said, I was saved by the letter M. If God had said not any, I wouldn't be there, but he says not many. Very clever. Well, if they had only considered them, the Corinthian people, this elementary fact, they would have seen an obvious point. It is not true that this should and would be true about all congregations of Christians, but generally speaking, it is true. You take our our, our best churches, uh, our big churches, our our uh, churches at the forefront of legitimate gospel activity. This is still true. This is still true of them. I look around me, I sit at Trinity Baptist Church, it's my home church, that's why I use that example. I look around me, and these things are true. Not many wise according to the flesh, not brilliant people. We have a couple of people who have gone to some good schools, and they are smart. But not many, not many wise, not many mighty, these are not people with political connections all the way up at the ladder, generally speaking. These are not influencers, well-born, great families, known for their connections. It's generally not true about any congregation of Christians at any point in church history. And that is the focus of Paul's proof. When he tells the Christians, you think it the wrong way, he says, just look around. It ought to be obvious to you. Secondly, let's look at the contrast 
in verses 27, beginning in verse 28, the contrast between the kinds of men, women included, of course, whom God chooses and those whom God generally rejects. Notice verse 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen the things that are not. So here is the contrast between the kinds of people whom God chooses and those whom God generally rejects. So you see at verse 26, he just names a couple of categories. He doesn't make a contrast. He says, just look around. These are the people who fill your churches. But now, in verse 27, he brings out the contrast. The kinds of people God chooses to save and the kinds of people whom God does not save, he generally rejects. And again, Paul is uh, focusing on the members of the church. He has brought to mind the fewness of the kinds of people in verse 26, the categories of people favored and admired by the world. He now begins to contrast them with those who predominate in the church. So he has five categories in verses 27 and 28. Now, these five categories, these five descriptions are not true of all those people, but uh, most of them could be described by one or more of these traits. So in contrast to the wise, Paul points to the foolish. It's not a flattering description. You think about it. We put ourselves in the midst of the congregation. And you say, well, who, who are we? I look around me, I see these kinds of people, and uh, God calls us foolish. And we are. And that's what we need, to, we need to remember. We're not Christians because we're smart. We're not Christians because of our IQ. We're not Christians because of our great ability to argue, to reason, to come to good conclusions. Paul says that's not who you are. The foolish don't know how to choose the right goals. And even when they do, they do not take the right steps to accomplish them. Jesus describes the foolish man. He builds his house on the sand. You remember that in Matthew 27. It's a foolish thing. It's wasted effort. They don't have the answers. They're so, so blind are the foolish that they do not even know the right questions to ask. They ask foolish questions. See? Well, that's, again, not very flattering, but that's what God chooses. That's what we're to think about. We're going we're gonna to come to a practical application, and this is a very important point for us, brethren. Very important. Add to this contrast, God says, I, I don't choose the wise, I choose the, I choose the foolish. I save the foolish. And I'll, I'll add this. It's not in my notes. Think back to what you were before God saved you. Think about the kind of person you were. Think about the kinds of choices you made, the kinds of things you pursued, the things you counted valuable. Do you think the same way now? 
Well, the reason why you're different now, if, if you if you are, and you probably are, is because of God's grace, not because you were so smart. So then there's another contrast here, which is set against the powerful, the influential, the weak of this world. The powerful have the uh, resources and connections they need to accomplish their purposes. The weak, who are the weak? Well, if you follow Paul's logic, we're all weak to one extent or another. It's not about physical ability. You can go to the gym six days a week and work out, work out on all the best equipment, get great trainers. That's not what it's about, the weak. You know who the weak were in Roman society? They were the widows and the orphans and the nobodies of the Roman world. In the New Testament, there were a lot of these kinds of people in the church. There were so many needy widows in Jerusalem that the business of feeding them could not be effectively managed without a seven-man team of very spiritual and capable men. That tells you how many widows there were in the church of Jerusalem. When Paul writes to Timothy, he has to include in 1 Timothy a major section on church policy toward widows, 1 Timothy chapter 5. These members certainly predominated in the church. So, uh, even thinking just about widows and orphans, uh, Paul's words become very evident, the weak things of the world, which God chooses confound the wise to shame them. The next contrast is the base things. And this corresponds again to the noble. You already said not many noble in your church. And now he says they are, you are the base things. Um, he takes the word noble and he puts a, he puts a, uh, an A in front of it, the alpha privative, which says they're not noble at all. These members had no special social distinction, no good family, no good background. They often had the kind of families which would make them blush to speak of. And no doubt for many of us, brethren, if we look back at our parents and grandparents and see the kind of stock from which we have come, we have cause to hang our heads in shame. Sometimes we don't speak about our families at all because it's embarrassing. Paul has that in mind. These are the kinds of people whose children God has chosen, the base. The next group goes beyond the normal disadvantages of most and brings in greater disadvantages. Paul's just... Uh, what is it? Uh, past, one of the pastors referred to a man who talked about God's seven-ranked army of descending human weakness. As you go through the list of the people whom God has chosen in contrast to the world, it's a descending scale. We keep on going lower and lower and lower. Not up. Normally, if you want to impress people, you start at the bottom and then you work your way up and that sounds great. But that's not Paul's logic. It's the opposite. He starts low and he keeps on going lower and lower and lower. The, the despised, 
people who were set at naught. The expression is forceful and emphatic, the commentator Lenski. He says, those who were at one time set down as being nothing at all by the world and continue to be rated as nil. It describes what the builders did with Jesus as the cornerstone. They cast him aside as worthless. And this is what the world has done with the people whom we call our brothers and sisters. And, you know, I, I like the, the habit of City View Baptist Church. I was talking about this to somebody yesterday. Everybody's sister so-and-so or brother so-and-so. We own our brethren. But that's not what the world thinks of us as. The world thinks of us as worthless. It sets us aside not worth a second look and you must not brethren i take a moment to apply you must not be discouraged that the world regards you the way that they do because this is god's design that's paul's point this is god's design that he would choose you though you're nobodies though you're nothings in the eyes of the world that's what God wants. That's what God uses to build his kingdom and advance it. His great purposes are accomplished. Well, one more insulting term. Paul describes the community of Christians by an even less flattering term than the despised. They were worthless and despised, yes, but even worse, some were nothing. Nothing. The non-existent things. Charles Hodge says they were even below contempt. Too insignificant to be noticed at all. Sometimes uh, I took courses at my job. They were courses designed to help co-workers to value one another. And they illustrated by having uh, one of the team members at a conference table and the guy in charge is asking for ideas and they're just, somebody raises their hand to say something and they just, they just dismiss them as though they were nothing at all. That's the concept, you see. Below contempt. You don't even say, how, how foolish, how worthless, nothing at all. Just ignore them. Now, Paul is not saying, again, that the church is unmixed. Not many, again. Generally, it's these unflattering characteristics. When men of the higher sort become sincere Christians, they do become despised. They are not so merely in the eyes of the world. And here again, it helps us to understand what Paul is doing Paul's not just saying that this is the way the world thinks of you Christians. This is the way the world evaluates you when you come into their spotlight. You realize what Paul says? This is the way God sees us. This is the way God sees us. And this is why he has chosen us. This is why he has saved us. It's as if God were saying to us, you know what? That's the way the world sees you, and so do I. But I like this. I use this. I bless this. 
seems insulting, does it not? But the wonder of it is that this is the most gracious and blessed kind of insulting. There is a kind of gracious insulting that God does, not like the world's insulting. Paul says that God has chosen these people over others that would appear more worthy of choice from the human perspective. So we've looked at the focus of the proof Paul uses, the community formed by God's saving work, the contrast between the kinds of men whom God chooses and those whom God generally rejects. He's rejected the better kinds, hasn't he? That's what he's done. And now, why has God done it this way? The designs of God in this strange arrangement, verses 28b and 29. Actually, it's sprinkled in verse 28. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen and the things that are not, so why? so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Verses 28b and 29. God has a purpose, a design. There is, this was a purposeful design. Paul says it's purposeful. God chose. This is what God did. This did not come about because the only people who would be interested in Christianity were the depressed classes. And that was, that was the opinion of many intellectuals and still is today. They say the only kinds of people who will embrace Christianity are weak people. Christianity is a crutch for crippled people, they say. Okay, Paul says, okay, just fine. Have it your way. Call us weak. Call us stupid. It's okay. Because that's what God does. That's what God says about us. But it's not only because we are the people, the only kind of people who would embrace Christianity. The, the slaves of the Roman Empire embraced Christianity in large numbers. The rejected Gentiles in large numbers. But that's not why it happened that way. It, it came about because God chose to do this work this way. He chose to work his marvels through people who from the human point of view were most unpromising. Let me, let me say something about this by way of a brief application. I was, a, I was pastoring a church and I, I remembered, uh, I remembered my past. You know, I had the afro, I had the, I had the overall jeans that I used to wear to church, and I didn't know anything about the Bible. I had, I, I was, I was the weak thing. I was the foolish thing. And I remembered this. And a man comes in. I was dressed in my suit and tie. And a man came in to our assembly. And he had a t-shirt, and he had pierced ears. And some of the people upset me a bit because they they're kind of laughing at him, kind of pointing him out, you know? Here's a, here's a, here's a nobody. This guy doesn't even know how to dress right for church. And it, it upset me because this is the kind of people God chooses. This is the kind of people God uses 
You, you never know. When someone comes into your church, and I've seen this happen. I've seen a guy come into the church. He's a worldly man. He's an influencer. He's rich. He's a his wife is a movie star. He's a uh, he's a movie producer, and he had his shirt open down to his navel with his hairy chest all over the place. And when we saw him, we said, "Wow, this guy doesn't even know how to dress for church." But God saved him. You see, you never know. You never know when God might bring into your church. Someone who looks like a nobody, knows nothing, and God may richly bless them, and you in them. So watch out about judging by appearance when people come in your church. That's James 2, of course, right? But, so God has this purposeful design. This is what God chose to do. Also, there was another parallel purpose. Not only did God choose how he would save these people, but he did it that he might shame, that he might shame the famous of the world. To bring them to realize their own failure and ultimate folly and weakness. To nullify them. To show how worthless and obsolete they are. And they are. Well, they may accomplish certain things in society and in politics, and we rightly pray for them. But Paul's very careful to use a word that means they're useless. It comes to reveal their uselessness. Well, this is God's purpose when he chooses the kinds of people he will save. He calls us, he calls the weak. The nobodies, the worthless. He sanctifies them. He sets them side by side with those who are advantaged. And they show in grace what the others do not have. Do you have, do you have true religion? A true and active faith. You, Christian, you have communion with Christ. We pray for it. Rightly pray for it. We pray, Lord, we want you to be in our midst. We want to know you. We want your face to shine upon us. That's what you, you have. And that's what the other people don't have. The people of this world whom God does not favor with his salvation. They don't have communion with God. They don't know God. Bunyan has his own um, autobiography. Very valuable. Um, and he he he, um, he describes himself. He had gotten some religion, and he said, "I I considered myself a brisk talker in religion," until he found, he heard two poor washerwomen speaking about the new birth, and Bunyan said, "I did. I realized I didn't know anything that they were talking about." And God used that. Used that. To make him realize that in reality he was nothing spiritual and he needed the grace of God. Well, this is going to be accomplished. You say, when is it going to happen? When is it going to happen? When are the wise of this world, when are the powerful going to wake up? Well, hopefully they wake up in this world. 
and realize they need the grace of God, what the people of God have. But it may be that it will not happen until the judgment day when Christ comes and sits on his glorious throne and he gathers all the nations and he separates the wheat from the goats. Then let me tell you, everybody who has been wise, too wise to be converted, will wish they were on the side with the nobodies and the worthless and the nothings. Then it's going to be evident to all the moral universe, to men and angels, and to God. Well, there was a... Now I get finally to verse 29. A major ultimate purpose. We've seen that God has his purpose in saving a people for himself. We've seen that God has a purpose in rejecting those who seem most advantaged. Those are purposes of God's, but the ultimate purpose in verse 29. So that no man may boast before God. That's God's major purpose. He wants to humble man and to exalt God. And that's what God's doing in the work of salvation. That's what God is doing in rejecting worldly wise, eminent, gifted men. This is his ultimate purpose. So that when men think of themselves as living before God, when they stand before God, no one would have anything to boast about. Now obviously the strong and the wise and the powerful will have nothing to boast about because they're on their way to hell. What does it matter how many great philanthropic institutions you built, how many changes you made in society if you end up with an eternity in hell? Or to put it in Jesus' words, what will it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lose his soul? They won't have anything to boast about. They won't be owned by God. They will be, they will hear the awful words, bind them hand and foot and cast them into outer darkness. Believers won't have anything to boast about either. We won't have anything to boast about. I often think about that phrase uh, that Jesus says to the people who are going into heaven. He says, you were hungry. I was hungry and you fed me sick and in prison and you visited me and, and, the, and the people of God said what? us? you? when? see we won't be in a, we won't be in a, the boasting frame of mind then we won't have anything to boast of it'll all be of grace for us won't it brethren we are the people who have received grace so I think, think for yourself for a moment just you and me which group will you be in? You're going to be on one side or the other. You're going to be among the sheep or you're going to be among the goats. Which, which one? Where are you? Where are you now? Well, we've looked at the, the focus of Paul's proof. It's the community formed by God's gracious work of salvation. We've looked at the contrast between the kinds of men whom God chooses and those whom God generally rejects. And the design of God and the strange arrangement that no man may boast before God. So it's time now 
to come down to a couple of final applications. Think with me of this. This shows us, brethren, what God is or is not trying to do in conversion when he calls men and women boys and girls. What is God trying to do in conversion? Or I shouldn't say trying because God's just doing, right? What is God doing in conversion? Well, he's not interested in people becoming religious in some vague sense. God does not want to create people with some kind of religious sensibility. The, the, the worldly people have a little phrase. Uh, my, I, my mom used to use it. She talked about meetings that she would go to, and she said, oh, there's a lot of spirituality there. Now, try and nail down what mom meant by spirituality is like trying to nail jello to a wall. You know, you don't you never really get to figure out what spirituality is among those people. That's not what God's trying to do. He's not trying to get people to become religious in some vague sense. He's not satisfied to have them maintain their customary attitudes towards life. In other words, he doesn't want them to become religious worldlings. He wants to change our hearts entirely. He wants us to see what we are by nature. We want, he wants us, when we come into the contact with the gospel, I'll put it this way, he wants you, when you come into, the, into contact with the gospel, he wants you to see that you are a needy sinner with no real value apart from the grace of God. He wants to show you what you are by nature so that you can seek him. You see, if you're, this is one of the problems with the kind of gospel which is preached in many places. Well, you know, you have a half an orange. Your spiritual life is a half an orange. And with Christ, you get the whole orange. So you get another half. You just kind of add something better to what you've got. That's not the gospel at all. The gospel is you have no orange. You have nothing to commend yourself. Nothing to enable you to stand before God. God doesn't want you to be impressed with the world. Impressed by what the world regards as worth something. I've heard people say, well, it's cool to be a Christian. It's cool to be a Christian. Well, I'm glad I'm a Christian. But something's wrong when that's the word that I, that I use to describe what God does in grace. In new Christians, immature Christians, we should expect to see the work of grace progressing like the parable of the soil, the parable of the wheat plant. First the blade, then the ear, then the full corn in the ear. So the work of God is progressing. But the more spiritual, the more mature, are ill if they are alive at all, when they are valuing the values of the world and thinking, well, a Christian, I've become a Christian, I've been made more like the world in its best features. Get your best life now. That's not the right attitude to what God's done for me and is doing with me.
put it another way for you. God is not concerned to give you a good self-image. Now, blessed be God, God tells us a lot of things about us that will help us to understand who we are. I used to walk with my wife when we were still early in our marriage, and we'd walk outside by the river, and I would say, well, who are we, We're made in the image and likeness of God. That's who we are. And that is the root of a wonderful self-image, of real value. And if we are redeemed, that's where value is. We're made like Christ. But God is not concerned, in the worldly sense, to have a good self-image image. We have lived, and I'm talking because I see the ages in front of me, we have lived in a world that has increasingly gone into self-image. You want to have a good self-image. You may be a scoundrel. You may have been a thief. One movie, at least a piece of a movie that was on TV where this woman was telling this man, you should love yourself. You could find ways to justify that idea. But God is not interested in you having a great self-image and thinking a lot about yourself. That's not God's program. Because see, Paul had no phobias about using terms which were not flattering to you, but insulting to you. It is appropriate that we have a humble view of ourselves. That's what Paul's doing with the Corinthians, who were already too puffed up and already too self-important and already too worldly. These are great dangers that will harm your soul. And the Bible speaks in the opposite direction predominantly. Just turn back a few pages if you're in 1 Corinthians to Romans chapter 12. And look with me at verse 16. Again, Paul is talking about what the Christian mindset is like. We are uh, not to be conformed to this world, which says have a, have a great self-image. Think a lot about yourself. Be your best self. Paul says, in contrast, well, you need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So verse 16 says, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind. You know what haughty is? That's proud, arrogant, self-important. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. I have been shocked at times with people who think that everybody should think like themselves. Their opinions are it. Why, why is this true? Because that's the way I think. It's a wicked, self-centered attitude. Do you have to be called great to be thought of as great? It's selfish and self-centered. 
feminism. It's feminism. We should not care what the world calls us. We should not be concerned about admiration. How many people think we're great? We want people to see good works. We want people to see good character, yes. Self-image and greatness are wrong. So watch out, watch out for the people, you young people. You're more vulnerable than your adult counterparts. Watch out for people who flatter you. Watch out for the people, people who say, oh, you're so pretty, you're so beautiful. It's nice to have people recognize that you dress nicely, etc. Watch out, though. Watch out. Watch out when people say, oh, you're so smart. I never realized how smart you are. You need to remember that book of Proverbs where Solomon says, he who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his steps. They want to catch you in their trap. They want to control you with flattery. Watch out. Not, not good for you. I think I've mentioned it before. When I get a phone call and a customer tells me, oh, you're so great. You're, you're the, the greatest. No, I'm not the greatest. I tell them. I say, my friend, uh, uh, Tony. Tony's the greatest. I'm, I'm not the greatest. Tony's better than I am. And Sarah's better than I am. I have good reason for saying those kinds of things. Well, one of them is to deflect this idea that you're the greatest. No, you're not the greatest. God is great. And you are the subject of his grace. That's your place. God doesn't want you to be boasting about yourself and thinking high thoughts of yourself. That's what Paul says. That's the reason God saves you this way. So that no man may boast before God. Now, this is what makes modern evangelism so foolish. It sets forth the great ones of the earth and the well-known of the earth as models. You know what they say? Well, we're going to get a football player who's won the Super Bowl. We're going to get the MVP on the NBA's team that won the championship. And we're going to get them to come in front of our congregation. We'll have a big evangelistic meeting. We'll fill giant stadium with people. And we'll get this guy. Is probably a half-converted worldly person making millions of dollars. And we're going to get him to stand up and say how, how wonderful God has been to him. He may not know anything about grace. May. There's not many mighty, but maybe, maybe there's a mighty. Yeah, yeah, but see, this is the problem with modern evangelical evangelism. Let's get the most influential people. You know, the most effective person to preach the gospel may be somebody who is a nobody in this world, but he knows God, she knows God. So, if you're here today, you are a sinner. You are weak, despised, you are nothing. As a sinner, despite your apparent outward advantages, disadvantages, without any apparent advantages, 
You are welcome to Christ and his church. You are welcome to become a believer in Jesus Christ. Because you know what? God doesn't care about your IQ. God doesn't care about how little money you have. God is gracious and saves people who have nothing but him to boast about. You're welcome to Christ and his church. And so, dear brethren, in one sense, you know, the things we have heard from the Apostle Paul might make us hang our heads. They make it, may make us feel ashamed in one sense, but you know what? You can live as a Christian under this program of God, which has chosen you to be the recipient of his grace. And so, in a sense, you know what? He who boasts, let him boast in the Lord. We're going to come to that. He who boasts, let him boast in the Lord. You have something to boast about, but it's not you. It's God and his grace. Well, let's pray. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we confess that the way we were when you found us, we were like a rejected fetus squirming in our blood. You look to us and you said, Live. And how many kindnesses you showered upon us, how many ways you supported us and did us good. And for this we praise and thank you. We pray that you would give us the right heart, Lord. Help us not to be insulted, not to want to think great thoughts of ourselves, but help us to be humble. Help us to realize how sinful we natively are and how needy we are apart from your grace. We praise you for that, that, those things we've read in the psalm about how you forgive the sins of your people. We thank you for the promises that you have made to us through Jesus Christ, how you have honored us with all your saving work. We pray you would use us for your glory so that people may see a happy, rejoicing, holy people who serve God with a sense of gratitude and humility, help us to boast in you, our God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.